but thought there was just no way to make it happen. Well, you may qualify for home ownership through Habitat for Come to the orientation meeting. There's one every month. You can find out all the things you need to know about becoming a homeowner. Call the Habitat office at 734-677-1558, extension 104. Or visit our website, www.h4h.org. See what Habitat for Humanity can do for you. Jill for WCBN. Oh, Ann yeah, Arbor, wait, say WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Say WCBN Ann Arbor. WCBN. WCBN Ann Arbor. And we gotta go to sound check. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Okay. Merry Christmas, everyone, and Happy New Year. Thanks so much for stopping by. Guys. Oh, we loved it. And remember this holiday season, if you're going to drink, get a designated driver. It's slippery out there. Stay tuned for Gray Matters, coming up next.
it's a lovely little reminder that spring will eventually come now that winter has arrived. Of course, the uh, recent drop in temperatures and the snow that's accumulated over the last couple of days, uh, too late for Christmas. But uh, for those of us who aesthetically enjoy the visual aspects of winter, this is welcome dusting of snow. I guess there's uh, expectations of perhaps a few more inches tonight overnight in the southeast Michigan area. Uh, so Cindy Lauper there was uh, about one-third correct on her uh, announcements. Uh, too late for Happy Christmas, um, but Happy New Year. Uh, for those of you uh, emerging from some slumbers or uh, those who've recently had uh, wisdom teeth pulled. But this is our first show, in fact, of 2015. And my name is Jim Dwyer. You're listening to Gray Matters, your weekly current events, media analysis, and political commentary program here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, student radio here at the University of Michigan. With uh, good community support and input, as we enter into another broadcast year, Dick Whaley will uh, rejoin the program next week. He's been uh, doing some traveling over the holidays. And, of course, I probably won't be here next week uh, since I'll be doing some traveling, bringing my daughter back to school. And of course, welcome back to Ann Arbor for everybody back in town for classes, which began again today in the cold. Well, uh, a quick glance at uh, today's front page of the New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, the nation's newspaper. Uh, I know that USA Today, or USA Toady, as we often call it here on Gray Matters, is probably a more available newspaper, since uh, I think Dunkin' Donuts everywhere are legally mandated to carry the USA Toady, <clears throat> in which... Uh, news is boiled down into McDonald's-like nuggets of uh, concision. Uh, but for better or for worse, the New York Times has emerged as the nation's newspaper. And of course, for a short time, there was an, uh, a publication. This would have been in the uh, mid-80s, mid to late 80s. I'm sure some listeners uh, will remember called The Lies of Our Times or Loot uh, that focused specifically on uh, misreporting uh, overt and covert propaganda, uh, sprinkled and laced throughout the pages of the paper of record, quote-unquote. But now that we live in an age where hard copies of actual physical, tangible, holdable paper newspapers, uh, the Times is kind of the go-to document, uh, Lies of Our Times, of course, was an offshoot from the Covert Action Information Bulletin, or Quarterly. And uh, that publication is sadly missed. Uh, many, many important exposés and breakthrough uh, reporting uh, occurred within the uh, two covers of that magazine. But uh, we'll hear in a moment from a writer who occasionally uh, was printed in those two journals, uh, but first, I'm going to do a sort of a cursory walk through the front page and just see, uh, as I sometimes like to call it, what's stupid in today's front page. Uh, because there's always something, sadly. 
And uh, there's never a dull moment, just a series of them all uh, jam-packed together. Uh, one damn thing after the other is... Uh, History has been so defined. Well, of course, the joke headline that Republicans say they'll act fast to push agenda um, sort of writes its own punchline. Uh, acting fast is not something they've been good at. And uh, saying they'll do something uh, that, in fact, they won't do is also a pretty common occurrence. So uh, we'll see how that goes. I was trying to resuscitate the Keystone Pipeline no doubt. Uh, the New York police force continues to silently, grudgingly uh, turn their backs on the mayor. And this seems to me a sort of a petulant uh, gesture. Um, I'm not sure what the union rules are for that. Certainly you can't fire people for exercising free speech, but I don't know if that's really the appropriate response. Uh, they feel put upon that their actions were scrutinized by a grand jury. But uh, it's no surprise that uh, the boys in blue will protect each other first and foremost. Uh, the article uh, by J. David Goodman uh, reports also that there's a de facto work slowdown by officers across the city. And... Uh, I'm not sure what that is expected to gain either. Uh, I think at one point, tensions between the mayor and the police force become secondary to uh, exacerbating the tensions between uh, the police force and the citizens uh, that they ostensibly are there to protect. So if everybody wants to uh, fold their arms and go sulk in the corner, um, good luck to them on that score. Uh, the other thing that's, uh, particularly with my background in uh, education, I find this is ridiculous, but also uh, symptomatic of this country's uh, long-standing trend uh, to destroy and disable public education, which, of course, was part of the John Birch Society's agenda way back in the late 50s and early 1960s. And they've encouraged uh, their grassroots membership to get active on school boards and work against teachers' unions and public schools in general and uh, dismantle the system of liberal indoctrination from within. Well, that agenda has never really stopped, and we saw here in the state of Michigan how the <clears throat> announced plans of our governor to, well, no, we're not really interested in pursuing the right-to-work state issue and then going ahead and doing it anyway, um, simply taking advantage of uh, the failure of attempt at legislation to protect uh, right to organize uh, as part of the state constitution. Um, that attempt failed, and so therefore the political moment was seized to, ha-ha, Voters of Michigan don't want to uh, add this language to the Constitution, so therefore let's take the right uh, away. And uh, this constant attack uh, on unions and public schools, uh, I think, is really telling when you consider that these are uh, some of the only agents of leveling the playing field that uh, common folks, uh, regular working people, have access to 
Um, there's a lot of things to criticize about government, and there are a lot of bad things about government. But when all is said and done, ultimately electing officials who can hopefully represent our best interests as communities is the only bulwark we have against the uh, complete purchase of every aspect of our nation. And so we'd better attack them if we are the corporate powers. Uh, so there's this new ruling, new law, actually, um, in Pennsylvania uh, limiting the uh, oversight of the homeschooling program uh, to the point where you really don't need to have any qualifications or to submit any um, body of work. I think there used to be a portfolio requirement. And uh, now they're just saying that, well, we don't really think there needs to be any oversight at all into uh, educating kids at home. And <clears throat> the problem with this is that you simultaneously loosen standards and also reward students who've, quote unquote, learned at home with the same credentials that those who've actually gone to the admittedly somewhat uh, antiquated uh workplace scenario of uh, the classroom, but uh, it does seem unfair to award the same credentials for what could, in fact, be wildly different uh, bodies of work created by individual students. Uh, I've always thought, as a former educator, I've always thought that, uh, you know, content uh, in curriculum is only one of the things that children are supposed to learn at school. They're also supposed to learn how to work together, to work with others, to think for themselves, to question authority, to, you know, a, a number of things, social skills being very important among them. And, uh, of course, many, not all, but many, perhaps even most of those who do practice, endorse, enthusiastically celebrate the right to educate kids at home, tend to be people from the religious uh, conservative end of the spectrum uh, who wish to, you know, include Bible studies in their children's, you know, daily lesson planning, and that's fine. Uh, of course, that could be uh, an auxiliary component of a traditional public school education, too. You just do Bible studies with mom on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons or something, but... Uh, you know, if people want to do this, it's, it is their right. But I think you, on one level, uh, guarantee uh, a situation wherein you really don't know how your child's uh, exposure uh, to different practices, different observations, different experiences will measure up with those kids who have been to a setting uh, in which there is, you know, mixing of different kinds of economic backgrounds, different kinds of political backgrounds, religious backgrounds. Uh, there's something very strengthening and something to be gained from that. So you're shutting your kids off from that. And I think also it sort of complicates the uh, parent-child relationship by becoming teacher-mom, boss-mom. Uh, there, you just add to the you know tensions that naturally occur in the household when mom is the boss and she has things for you to do and you have to do them. Sometimes you don't want to do them, and so you're going to argue with mom a little bit. And if mom is also your teacher, I wonder a little bit about what the long-term uh, 
effects are there. Uh, and of course, mom or dad doesn't need to have any special training, uh, as of course, teachers are legally required to do, because, you know, schools want to guarantee uh, qualified individuals uh, are in the positions to educate the youth of America for the jobs of the future, whatever those might be. Now, are there bad teachers in public schools? Well, duh, of course there are. There's bad workers in every workforce. There's bad congressmen and senators, and there's bad CEO executives. Uh, but for every bad teacher that you've ever had in your educational experience, you've also had uh, two or three teachers who really opened doors for you intellectually, who uh, made a very positive impact on your future development as either somebody who practices a particular skill or trade uh, or even just a new appreciation for the arts uh, or what have you. So uh, this is just another sign of this uh, trend against the uh, leveling aspects of schools, public schools, and unions. So... A trend that I'm sure will continue throughout 2015, as I say, it's uh, been pretty much uh, on the back burner or the front burner ever since the late 50s in the uh, impeach Earl Warren trend of the Birchers back in the day. So uh, let's take a brief uh, musical break here with more of Max Richter's uh, recomposition of Vivaldi's Four Seasons. And I'll be back in a moment with some uh, words from Robert Fisk.
as we're lingering in the shadows of Max Richter's electronic soundscapes based on snippets from Vivaldi's The Four Seasons. And this is probably one of the finer record albums from 2014. Recomposed by Max Richter, Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Well, as uh, I mentioned, we're going to go now to something from Robert Fisk, who is, of course, a uh, journalist who's been uh, well-known for his excellent uh, coverage of the Middle East. He lived in Lebanon for a number of years. His book, Pity the Nation, is probably the uh, most significant work in English, certainly, on uh, the Lebanese Civil War, which, of course, now that a civil war in Syria is... Uh, bubbling and spilling over into uh, all the neighboring countries. Uh, the refugee crisis, of course, uh, unstoppable, and uh, yet those countries are trying to stop it. There's a lot of stories today about uh, new restrictions on, uh, uh, you know, the availability of uh, access to these countries for Syrians trying to flee the violence in their nation. <clears throat> But uh, Fisk's piece is actually about the uh, International Criminal Court and the Palestinian attempt to pursue actions there in the arena of civilized behavior, uh, the court of law. Uh, this is called uh, a gory Pandora's box, Palestine and the ICC, Robert Fisk. This appears on the uh, counterpunch.org website and is dateline January 5th. 2015, and this is what he writes. Throw an old dog a bone, and sure enough, he'll go chasing after it. So it is with Palestine's request to join the International Criminal Court, and Palestine is in quotes there, an obvious attempt by Mahmoud Abbas to try Israel for war crimes in Gaza this year, we are told. Or maybe a two-edged sword, quote-unquote. Yawns are permitted for such cliches, which could also put Hamas in the dock. Israel was outraged. The U.S. was strongly opposed to such a dastardly request by the elderly potentate who thinks he rules a state which doesn't even exist. But hold on a moment. That isn't the story, is it? Surely the real narrative is totally different. The BBC didn't get this, nor CNN, nor even Al Jazeera. But surely the most significant event of all is that the descendants of the PLO excoriated only a quarter of a century ago as the most dangerous terror organization in the world, its mendacious leader Yasser Arafat branded, quote, our bin Laden, close quote, by Israel's mendacious leader Ariel Sharon, actually wants to abide by international law. Heavens preserve us from such a thought, but these chappies, after all their past calls for Israel's extinction, after all the suicide bombings and intifadas, are asking to join one of the most prestigious judicial bodies on earth. For years, the Palestinians have demanded justice. They went to the International Court in The Hague to have Israel's apartheid wall dismantled. They even won, and Israel didn't give a hoot. Any sane Palestinian, you might think, would long ago have turned his or her back on such peaceful initiatives. Yet, still, these wretched Palestinians persist, after this most humiliating of insults, in resorting to international law to resolve their conflict with Israel. Here they go again, 
dutifully seeking membership of the International Criminal Court. Will these Arabs never learn? And, of course, the Americans are threatening to punish such effrontery. Stop those millions of dollars in aid to the Palestinians. Stand by Israel's refusal to accept any such approach to the International Criminal Court by Palestine, quote-unquote. The EU, especially Britain and France, have gone along with this tosh. Israel has already decided to stop more than 80 million pounds in tax owed to the Palestinian Authority. The U.S. State Department's spokesman told us that his government is deeply troubled by the Palestinian application. It is entirely counterproductive, he informed the world. It does nothing to further the aspirations of the Palestinian people for a sovereign state. Though one might have thought that membership of so august a judicial body would have done a lot to persuade the world that Palestinians were ready to shoulder all the burdens of statehood. After all, the Palestinians would indeed have to abide by international law, and, if the law applied retrospectively, they would have to carry the burden of opprobrium themselves for both Hamas crimes and past PLO murders. The United States, of course, and this fact oddly did not feature in the flurry of news reports on Palestine's request to join, has itself refused to join the International Criminal Court. And with good reason. Because like the Israelis, although this is not quite how the whole Fandango was explained to us, uh, Washington is also worried that its soldiers and government officials will be arraigned for war crimes. Hmm. Think waterboarding. Abu Ghraib. The report on CIA torture. Dot, dot, dot. No wonder Jeffrey Rathke, the windbag who speaks for the State Department, says that the Palestinian request badly damages the atmosphere with Israel, undermines trust, and, quote, creates doubt about their Palestinian commitment to a negotiated peace, close quote. And remember, Abbas only made his request after America had vetoed, and it has used its veto more than 40 times on Israel's behalf to reject Palestinian self-determination since 1975, a U.N. Security Council resolution to end Israel's occupation of Palestine, Palestinian land by 2017. But, of course, what this whole kerfluffle is really about is quite simple. The world is tired of witnessing the suffering of Palestinians. Those with an ounce of human sympathy are sickened at being slandered as anti-Semitic or anti-Zionist, whatever that is, every time they express their outrage at Israel's cruelty towards Palestinians. Killing more than 2,000 Palestinians last summer, hundreds of them children, was a mass slaughter. We've watched this grotesquerie so many times now, in Gaza for the most part, that even our statistics have become spattered with blood. Who now recalls the fatalities of the 2008-09 Gaza War? 1,417 Palestinians dead, 313 of them children, more than 5,500 wounded. That was the conflict upon which President-elect Obama had no comment to make. And who knows what other gory Pandora's box ICC membership would open. The bomber pilot who in 2002 killed 15 civilians, 11 of them children, in a Gaza apartment block to assassinate a Hamas official, for example. Wouldn't that constitute a war crime? Don't these outrages damage the atmosphere and undermine trust? Were these bloodbaths not entirely counterproductive? And the Jewish colonization of the occupied West Bank? Sure, bang up those behind Hamas and Islamic Jihad suicide attacks for war crimes. 
get the Palestinian Authority thugs who torture and murder their own prisoners. But that's not what Israel and the U.S. are worried about. They are concerned that after months of arguing and rowing and delving through thousands of documents, jurists may decide that Israel, horror of horror, may have to answer for itself before international justice, which no routine U.S. veto could prevent. Now just imagine if Israel and America wanted the Palestinians to sign the Rome document. Conjure the thought, for a split second only, that Israel and America insisted that the Palestinians must abide by an international treaty and become members of the ICC to qualify for statehood. Abbas's refusal to do so would be the further proof of his terrorist intentions. Yet, when Abbas does sign the Rome document, when the Palestinians want to abide by an international treaty, they must be punished. Surely a first in modern history. I can only think of two phrases that fit the bill for this scandal of the West's politicians. Confound their politics. Frustrate their knavish tricks. The impasse in the Middle East in a nutshell. Apropos of which, Avi Shlaim, among the finest of Israeli historians, has just brought out a new edition of his great work, The Iron Wall, Israel in the Arab World. Quote, the prospect of a real change in American foreign policy looks slim to non-existent, he writes, nor is there at present any evidence to suggest Israel's borders are remotely Israel's leaders are remotely interested in a genuine two-state solution. They seem oblivious to the damage that the occupation is doing to their society and to the reputation of their country abroad. Close quote. That's it in a nutshell, isn't it? Those are the words of Robert Fisk writing uh, for the Independent, but also on this case uh, in counterpunch.org. You've been listening to Gray Matters on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Stay tuned to Yazoo City Calling, your down home Delta Blues program coming up next, right here on 88.3. Mm. 